everyone. Good to have you on. I've got a special guest today, Dan Bartlett, who is the Executive Vice President of Walmart of Corporate Affairs. And the reason we've got Dan on today is, is we're coming up on the 20th year anniversary, 20th year since 9-11, 2001, when the country was attacked. And what some of you may know, but not all of you would know, is that Dan had a, a very important role in the government at that time and was very, very close to a number of the events that happened on 9-11 and in the years following. So, Dan, thanks for joining, first of all. Good yeah, to you have you. It's good yeah. to be with you. You've been an associate now for eight years, lived in Northwest Arkansas for that same amount of time. And I want to go back, though, to let's start even before 9-11-2001, but love for everybody to know how you got from a kid in Texas to ending up in, in the White House altogether. And it, there's some, some great <laughs> stories there I'd like everybody love to hear. Well, it, um, it wasn't a, a typical track. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be in politics. Grew up in the state of Texas and in in, at that time was a pretty small rural town um, east of Dallas, Rockwell, Texas, and went to the University of Texas. And um, my entry into politics really was out of a necessity of finding a job. My, my, my parents, my mom told me that if I wanted to not have to come home during the summer break, I had to get a job. And through another buddy of mine, I was able to get a job at the Capitol there in Austin, Texas, the state Capitol, and during the legislative session and, um, and started to kind of get the political bug then. Um, and through that and another friend of mine, um, went to work for a political consultant uh, named Carl Rove, who at the time was not as a uh, well-known name, but as he is today in politics, and um, had the chance. I mean, at that time, uh, George W. Bush, the son of George H.W. Bush, was, was the owner of the Texas Rangers baseball team, was contemplating running uh, for governor of Texas against a wildly popular governor at the time, Ann Richards. Um, and everybody kind of felt it was a fool's errand for him to run against her. Um, I didn't know better uh, to not think through that and maybe picked a different campaign. Turned out to be the right move. Uh, met him very early. And that was, I think, the third or fourth campaign staffer hired right out of I was finishing college. And um, and it set off a, a pretty un, you know, remarkable run. I was the longest continuous serving staffer to, to President Bush, I mean, starting in October of 1993 and um, leaving the White House in July of 2007. So it was, so I went through both his terms as governor of Texas, was able to work on the presidential campaign in 2000 and then served over seven years in the White House. So it was uh, an extraordinary run. Yeah, pretty, pretty unique. And, um, you know, when you got to, I, I don't want to skip over too much because there's a lot in there, but uh, the candidate becomes governor, decides to run for president. And then once, once he's elected, what happened from there? How did you get from being a staffer in Austin, then into the White House and, and into the job that you ultimately ended up in before September 11th in 2001? Yeah, so most of my roles in the governor's office were more policy oriented. As, he, as we started to shift to run for president and, um, and I worked on the re-election campaign for governor and at that time national pundits and others were already speculating that um, he was preparing for a run, which we were preparing for that in case he made the decision to do that. And my job started morphing more into communications role. And as I did that um, into the presidential campaign, it became almost exclusively in more on the communication side. And I was kind of a, a conduit between the two. And so uh, being on the core campaign staff, uh, typically, 
uh, historically, those core campaign staffers then make up uh, a core part of the of the White House staff as well. And so I came in first as deputy communications director um, under uh, a woman named Karen Hughes. And that was my role for the first uh, year and a half or so. And Karen, for personal reasons, decided earlier than all of us anticipated with her family to move back to Texas and leave the White House a bit early. And I was promoted to communications director much earlier than I thought I would be or deserved, frankly. And um, and I was, I think, um, the youngest communications director ever uh, in, in, uh, in, in the White House. Uh, like I said, it was surreal. I mean, there were moments early on in there where if you remember the movie Forrest Gump and there's always the picture of Tom Hanks in these historic moments that it doesn't, that he's the, the person out of place. I felt like that many times being in some of these moments that it just didn't feel like I should be there. So, and obviously as that rolled right into um, 9-11 because it was so early mm-hmm. in the presidency, um, all of us were still really trying to get our own footing and being comfortable with uh, working at the White House and serving the President of the United States. So it, it, um, it, it, it was obviously even going into that in extraordinary circumstances. So, so there's a leadership lesson there that I think a lot of people on our team would want to hear. So when you got the job as communication director, how old were you at the time? Oh, I had to be 31, 32. 31. Right. So younger than probably everybody in the room and most conversations and that feeling of, I'm not sure I've deserve to be here, should be here. How, how did you manage that? Because it, it happens in retail all the time. People get to roles that they weren't expecting at a certain time and you got to grow into it. And, and in this situation, you didn't have a lot of time to work into the job. No, it was, um, <clears throat> there were some pretty dominant personalities. I mean, I walk into a meeting with Condoleezza Rice, Don Rumsfeld, Colin Powell, uh, Dick Cheney, and I'm sitting there thinking, I have no business first being in this meeting and much less speaking up in these meetings. And But then you just tell yourself there's a reason why you were given this job. There's a reason. And the person that mattered only in that room was the person who ultimately agreed, uh, gave me that job, who, which was President Bush. And over time, he put me through my paces. And he, um, and he was very much, but I really appreciated his leadership style. It really was a meritocracy. It was not um, what you're at, you know, all the different degrees you'd earned or this or that, or accolades you think you've accomplished. It was, did you know what you're doing? Did you have confidence in what you're saying? And that's what he really he focused on was like, he could tell when somebody wasn't sure about themselves. And if he, if, if you're not confident in what you're recommending, why should he be confident in, in, in taking that advice? And so, Sometimes you hear the old adage, you know, fake it till you make it and those things. Those I don't think is necessarily true. You don't have to fake it. Be yourself. Be authentic um, and trust the fact that there's reasons why people put you in the role in the first place. And the worst thing you can do to not meet their expectations is to be reticent or to be, um, you know, unwilling to to assert yourself because that's why you're there. That's right. That's right. Be who you are and you're unique in your own way. Let's start with then the morning of, of uh, 9-11, probably a normal day. I remember it really well. I don't remember anything up until about 8.45 that morning, but normal, normal day of the week and, and what happened. And, and you know, for all those that are watching, uh, you'll hear in a second, but, but Dan was at the school in Air Force One, made the two stops later that afternoon, and then eventually back to D.C. But just talk through the morning and, and what happened to the events that led up 
yeah, around 8.45 that day. Yeah, so it was a, a typical day. Um, there was, um, you know, so we're nine months into the presidency of a first-term president, very similar situation to where Joe Biden, the current president, finds himself right now. facing now probably the first bit of, of uh, adversity in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of commentary around President Bush's agenda stalling, particularly around education reform, which he was pushing at the time. So we were traveling that day in Florida to talk about and highlight the president's uh, reform package around education. And so that morning he was supposed to, he was uh, to do the school visit. And it was like any typical um, day of travel. President Bush was a pretty uh, uh, disciplined person when it comes to exercise. He had gotten up earlier that morning and went and, 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 and jogged as did I, not with him, but, um, and, and I remember, you know, we were, it was about 8.48 a.m. We're pulling up to the elementary school. Several of us were getting calls from the White House saying, hey, we just kind of flagged this for you in case the media asks. You may want to let the president know, but there's been some sort of plane accident in New York where a plane has hit one of the World Trade Center towers. And similar to everybody else, uh, including the president, who himself um, had, is a trained pilot, thought, that is, you know, either a weather-related event or, you know, some sort of did the did the pilot have a, a heart attack or some sort of medical event that had caused such a egregious error because it and, and is it a, and it felt like, you know, we didn't know it was a commercial airliner at that point. We just thought it was a personal aircraft. So a lot of puzzlement around that, but it wasn't one in which we thought anything other than just that uh, an accident. It wasn't until we got into the, you know, so we felt like with that and. With that in mind, we thought, you know, this, this, there's no reason for us to disrupt our program or our, our, the president's schedule at that point. And so we proceeded with that. And so the president then, as it was, you know, recorded in history and, and famously referenced, was he was sitting in the classroom. And it's really an extraordinary moment to think that um, one of the last people to know what was happening in the country was the president of the United States. And, and we were debating outside that room is like, we've got to do something. And that's when we decided that the president's chief of staff, Andy Card, would go in and tell him that the second tower, um, that a plane had hit the second tower, that America was under attack. Um, that then became a moment for President Bush to decide what to do. And I think his mo at that time, he felt like in times of leadership, um, you have to show a steady hand. And the last thing we wanted was some sort of panicky move. And so it was his judgment to stay, let the, that program for a few minutes finish before he left, as opposed to bolting out of there. I know there's been a lot of um, armchair quarterback, whether that was the right thing or not, it didn't change anything about the decision-making or what had to transpire. So we quickly, after that, halted the president in the holding room. And anytime the president travels, he has, a room that has secure lines for him to talk to anybody that he needs to talk to. In this case, it was the vice president. And at the same time, uh, the FBI director who was on his second day on the job, Bob Mueller was the FBI director. Can you imagine the second day on a job that you have to deal with the, the most, uh, an unprecedented attack on, on, on our, you know, uh, territory. And so at this point, you have a lot of what they call the fog of war. Uh, a lot of information flowing in. We didn't have a, a firm grasp, but we knew that it would, we made a very short remarks there. So I'm there help preparing President Bush to make remarks. 
Um, very difficult to do, not knowing where we were in this attack, how many more elements to it or stages to that attack there might be. But the, 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 the plan was to, as quickly as possible, is to get to Air Force One. And at that time, we thought, we presumed that we were heading back to Washington, D.C. That turned out not to be the case. So when uh, this all happened, I'm, I'm sure uh, we all remember that we're watching the president holding his composure. You could, you could tell he was a bit biting his lip trying to figure out what to do. And then you're all huddled over in the sides and up to sure outside the room trying to make decisions. When you got regrouped, you got back to Air Force One. What happened that changed then the decision to go from D.C. to instead turning to Louisiana? Interesting enough, and just these little things that I mean, not there at the time. We, um, you know, anytime you travel with the president, you're in the big motorcade, all those different things, and they travel pretty swiftly. I remember getting in that motorcade to the to Air Force to the Air Force base where the uh, Air Force One was, and we were probably going 100 miles per hour. I mean, it was faster than ever, and they had a whole cocoon of of uh, police cars and other things around in case there was some sort of car bomb. I mean, the, when you start seeing what the Secret Service does when they're in emergency mode, it was quite extraordinary. And then when we got to the to the airport itself and there was, you know, the pilots and others said that there was some unidentified vehicle at the end of the runway on the opposite side. So they got permission to to take off opposite direction and and use diversionary tactics. When I tell you, you know, is, this is not like when you board American Airlines or Southwest Airlines where they wait till everybody gets seated when you're tip, typically on Air Force One. People are walking around while we're taxiing and taking off. And I do remember, and, and usually we take off with a, a pretty decent ascent, but nothing out of the ordinary. That plane took off like a rocket. And I mean, I, I distinctly remember like literally holding on to a chair so I wouldn't fall over because of the diversionary tactics they were taking out, out, of, out of precaution. And it was about that time, really, when we were taking off that the Pentagon got hit. And so this notion that we were going to go back to to, to Washington, D.C. was changing as, you know, by the minute, by the second. And the decision then was to regroup, to head west and regroup um, um, at a Barksdale Air Force Base in Texarkana, Texas. And so we started to, to head that way. And again, like I said, interestingly enough, and one of the, the difficult things in a period like this is that you try to, try to, divorce the personal from the professional, which is very difficult to do. I mean, for the president himself, you know, he has family His, you know, the first lady Bush, uh, Laura Bush was at the, the Capitol for an event that day, the U S Capitol, former president Bush, his parents were um, traveling as well. I think they were in Milwaukee that day. So you're trying to, and he has his daughters also. And so he's trying to, you know, my family. Okay. And we're all doing the same thing. And you got to remember, this is before iPhones and all that. I mean, the, the most, um, you know, kind of cutting edge technology at that point was a BlackBerry, for those of you who are a little bit older might remember. And we had one person in the traveling party, Carl Rove, who had a BlackBerry. And I remember all of us getting in line and sending our wives, our spouses, notes with that BlackBerry saying, I'm okay, I'll talk to you when I can. It turned out the next time I talked to my wife was about four o'clock that morning. And so the day went on as we traveled to Barksdale Air Force Base, Again, there to try to assess, you know, at this point, we don't know how many uh, commercial airliners are now literally being turned into missiles and into weapons. And so the 
the FAA and the Department of Transportation working to try to ground all the commercial aircraft that are in the air. And we're talking about thousands of planes. Many of those kind of particularly um, um, international flights coming in with no knowledge of really what the extent or how many waves of attacks we were to expect. But at the same time, what was gnawing on all of us was from a leadership standpoint, we didn't want the president to be viewed as quote unquote on the run, but there's an obligation to the institution of the presidency and succession and, and the protecting of the presidency. And so you have this tension between the secret service and those who are not just protecting a person, but they're protecting the office of the president and they don't really care about the politics of optics of what the president's doing. That's not their job. Their job is to protect the presidency. And so there was a lot of back and forth with the chief of staff, the president, and uh, the security president, and also intelligence community back in Washington, D.C. about what we knew or didn't know. And so, again, there was this decision um, to, to wait. We decided then to relocate to what is called uh, Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, which had a better command system there. It is actually the, the, the Air Force base in which we help monitor the nuclear capabilities, not only the United States, but uh, uh, around the whole world. So when you think about DEFCON 3, DEFCON 4, those things of other countries, that's where we're tracking it. It's where the, an old Cold War relic, the, the doomsday plane, as they called it, is situated there in case there is a Cold War, you know, a nuclear attack on Washington, D.C. And so you're looking at all these things and it literally feels like you're now inserting yourself into a movie script. It was a surreal experience and, and very difficult to clear your mind. And that's one thing I, you know, just, it's one thing um, to, to train for crises. And I think we all know that we do that in stores. We do that in, 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 and we know like typical, right? Like if there's a, a hurricane or if there is a active shooter in our stores, we kind of know what the playbook is and we can train our associates to that playbook. This was unprecedented. This was, there wasn't really a playbook for all of us to follow. And, and at the same time, there was a lot of incomplete or if not just completely wrong information, which made it very difficult in the time of crisis to make good decisions. And Dan, I, I, you know, thinking about everything you just said, was it in the motorcade driving to Air Force One when you knew your your, your, your job, your life, this experience was about to change pretty dramatically? It was probably in the room, the holding room in the school when, and there's a picture that was captured publicly or released publicly. And, um, cause you gotta remember, we didn't, you know, information, you know, the best information we really were getting were from the news networks yes. and right. there's a picture of president Bush is on the phone and I'm, and he's speaking, I think to the vice president, and I'm pointing at the screen watching the first tower fall and in um, just total disbelief like others. And so your mind's not really processing, you know, kind of the longer term ramifications. It was probably when we when we started to make that trip back to Washington, D.C. from off at Air Force Base, the president was going to return. We're starting to work on the speech that he was going to deliver to the nation. And the president started talking about what was going to be necessary in the days and weeks ahead, you start kind of really wrapping your head around that this has fundamentally changed the nature of the job, a job that, again, we were just kind of starting to get our arms around having only been nine months into the presidency and knowing that the presidency for this president had fundamentally changed. And, and what was really interesting to watch with him 
And it was, how do you check your emotions and keep your emotions at bay? And his, and he had a range of those emotions of sadness and sorrow for those who lost life. And there were people, and we learned while we were on Air Force One that a the, at the time, the Solicitor General uh, for the United States, Ted Olson, his wife, Barbara Olson, was on Flight 77 that ultimately hit the Pentagon. It really struck home that here was somebody that we knew personally that who, who was part of this horrific event. And then anger. You can, the president really had to check that emotion as well to really want, obviously, retribution. And But these are emotions that when you're the leader of the free world and you have to be able to present yourself in a way that <clears throat> confidence and reassurance, you got to know how to check those emotions and not wear them as much on your sleeve. And in some cases it's appropriate to wear them on your sleeve, but finding that rhythm. And that was a difficult period for him on that day. And a couple of days after to find that right rhythm of, of, of emotion and, and tapping into where the, where the, the, the country was and where they wanted to go. And, and every president kind of has to find their footing during that a crisis like that. And, and, you know, that doesn't happen instantly. And particularly with such something of such enormity as 9-11. And so, you know, I think it was probably later in that week where he really did find his footing. But as I look back on it and I, I you know, again, I tell you, it's like a movie script almost probably one of the most, um, memorable etched in my memory moments was as we were flying back into Washington DC <laughs> airspace, we have two fighter jets just off the tips of both wings of air force one. And the nation's capital was deserted. It was empty. And except for emergency personnel, you could see military and, and first responder personnel. And then you see smoke billowing out of, one of the most mighty buildings in the country, the Pentagon. And you just, you just watch it. We watched it in disbelief that it actually happened. And we landed at Andrews Air Force Base. We get on the helicopters to go and we're flying over air, you know, over the DC terrain there in, in city and fear takes over. Again, we don't know. This is a sophisticated attack. We don't know if there are people you know, hidden with RPGs and are going to take out the president's helicopters. That's another emotion that was real. It's one that you didn't really want to accept or acknowledge, but all of us felt it. And, and throughout the day, there were levels of reality hitting, I'm sure. And you know, the other end of, of the, uh, the range of emotion that they, there are people all over the country that were living through, you know, sort different sorts of fear, uncertainty. And something you said about leadership, trying to figure out how to, how to, how to do the role you've been assigned at a time when emotions are starting. And I remember about the time you were, you were talking about the first tower falling. I was running a Walmart store in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And I thought that was the point I need to, to pull my department managers together to tell them what had happened. And as you said, People in the stores, we didn't have Blackberries. None of us really had even cell phones at that time. So there wasn't any communication going on unless someone had physically called the store and told someone that it was happening. So I, I pulled 26 department managers together and it hit me at that moment. I was telling them what had happened. And most of them were the spouse of a Marine because we we're about a, a mile north of what, as many of you know, is Camp Lejeune, where at that time there were 67,000 Marines. And I just remember looking at them sort of explaining, thinking, 
their spouse is about to go to war. And within a couple hours, the basin was closing. Everybody left other than I think me and four or five associates who kept the store open for a few hours. But it, it was the look on their face when the emotion hits. And, and I remember thinking, I've got to stay composed and I've got to be the leader that communicates this well so that they can have something stable in their lives. So they can get back to the base. But I'm sure across the country, um, people watching, you know, if you weren't, if you weren't born then, then, you know, you could think about this like, but so many people are going to remember in the next couple of days what they're going through at that time. But I uh, couldn't imagine what, what you and the team had to, all the things you had to think through that day. So as, as you wrap up in Nebraska, I'm sure there were forces saying to the president, you can't go and others saying we're going back to DC. You know, how, how did that conversation run? And when you got there, how did, how yeah, did that come together? Yeah, it was, um, if, the, if the Secret Service had completely had its way, the president would have spent the night in off an Air Force base. There was some growing criticism on television of the, you know, the TV pundits and all saying, where's the president, where's the president? Uh, he just finally said, we're going back. And I think at that time, while there was still a fear of, uh, by the, the intelligence community thought there was going to be a, a another wave or an additional wave of attack. Um, the president was just absolutely adamant that Air Force One was going back and he was going to be on it. And so that was kind of settled and that we needed to address the nation and we weren't going to address the nation from a military bunker in Nebraska. Uh, you can only imagine. Um, so there are times when you have to make decisions like that. He made that decision and it turned out to be the right one. Got back to, ultimately got back to the White House um to deliver that speech uh that he delivered from the oval office and again you're trying at that point to balance you know there's the what's beginning is the recovery efforts in uh lower manhattan at the world trade center there's also the rescue efforts and recovery efforts happening at the pentagon um as well as the wreckage of flight 93 in pennsylvania which was likely a plane that was headed to hit the u.s capitol or potentially the white house and um, and what was interesting is the president um, aptly at that time said the first counterattack in the war on terror started with the citizens on Flight 93, and which is just an extraordinary you know moment for our country to see the courage of of ordinary citizens stepping up and doing something extraordinary and selfless. To save, I don't know, countless lives. The other interesting thing about that, that a lot of people don't know, is that we knew that that plane had been hijacked, and the president and vice president, the president communicated vice president about, unfortunately, the a situation you'd never want to be in, which was authorize our own military jets to um, take down that plane before it could do greater harm. The interesting thing about that story is that the two fighter jets, they were National Guard fighter jets, scrambled from Washington, D.C. They had to scramble so quickly that they were not, they didn't even have time to arm the planes. So they had no ammunition. So as those two pilots took off, and one was a, a female pilot and a male pilot, they knew that they were going to have to collide with and take the plane out. And they talked about one, one was going to hit the front of the plane and the other one was going to hit the back of the plane. Could you imagine having that mission of not only uh, giving yourself up, but then having to kill fellow Americans to save a greater number of Americans, you know, luckily 
those citizens on the plane took matters into their own hands and, and ultimately didn't have to make that call. But I can just imagine president having to make that decision, but also those two pilots would have to execute that decision. Yeah, it's a, a, a true example of putting cause and, and country above yourself. And I remember um, that day there were there were a few people on 93 that that had called family and one was was Todd Beamer. Um, the story of what what Todd did and and I think, you know, obviously made made famous the time when he's when he says, let's roll and let's go to the cockpit. How did how did you guys hear about that story? When did you know about it? Was it was it later in the week? Yeah, it was, I can't remember exactly which day it was later. The president did have the opportunity to meet with Todd Beamer's uh, wife and family, as, as he did with many of the families uh, from mm-hmm. that flight. And and he really just uh, just in complete awe of their courage. And and that is the one thing about the communications. They they were able to learn and through them reaching out to family to say, hey, I think our plane's been hijacked. That right. family members were able to inform that it's like, hey, this is a two plane. They didn't know that the planes had hit the two towers. So now they were able to get information. And that critical, if you think about it, that really was the first military operation in the U.S. response to a terrorist attack. Intelligence being given to our the front line and them acting on it like Todd Beamer did. They knew, okay, we know what they want to do with this plane. There's a target of civilians they want to take out. Let's roll. Just extraordinary. Um, and I remember attending um, the ceremony we did in that field in Pennsylvania, where we now have a monument recognizing their heroism. Just, just extraordinary. Yeah, it was. I, I, I distinctly remember when the plane went down, someone recorded uh, Vice President Cheney stating that was an act of heroism. And then as a Walmart associate, uh, Probably a year or two later, I don't, I don't remember the time exactly. We also had the chance to hear from Lisa Beamer. She came and spoke to all of us at one of our fall or European meetings. And it's it's one of those those events, moments that in my career I'll never forget. And it's a true privilege of getting to hear from someone like that. And it's the advantage of being a Walmart associate and pretty amazing experience overall. Absolutely. So, you know, Dan, the, uh, the events of, of 2001 and beyond, you know, fast forward now to 2020, uh, we are trying to manage a retail business. We're in, in the midst of a global pandemic. I remember the day that you and I met in the hallway when the World Health Organization determined that coronavirus was a pandemic, a global pandemic. Now, how did those experiences then help prepare you for what you've been through in the last year? Because I can, I can tell everyone on here, despite what was going on, there was always one calm voice in the room, and that was Dan. And I kept thinking, why does he keep staying so calm? And then, you know, it hit me, well, you know, compared to everything you've been through, this was probably like a Thursday in the office in Washington, D.C. in October of 2001. Yeah, sometimes I worry that maybe my my sensories have been dulled a little bit too much. I mean, if you think about my time in government, we dealt with not only obviously 9-11 and then the aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan, a shovel disaster, uh, two Supreme Court nominations, um, Katrina, um, uh, financial crisis, which I wasn't in the White House for that time in 2008, I'd already left, but but helped to deal with it from the outside. So, so these experiences that I had going through um, all these different crises, whether it be 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, the crisis around uh, Katrina and those things. One thing about 9-11 is we quickly realized that this was unprecedented. This wasn't a typical 
uh, crisis that we had a playbook for. And frankly, that's the same thing with the pandemic. None of us, this is a hundred year event. Um, and so as a leadership team, we have to sit down and say, okay, let's start with the principles. What are the principles we're gonna use to make decisions? And as you set up those principles, that then becomes the guiding force for you as you make decisions about what are the protocols we're gonna put in place for the safety of our associates, the safety of our customers. And then as we've come to know, there's an expectation in uh, not only just in the market here in the United States, but elsewhere of, you know, Walmart can contribute mightily during times as we can use our scale for good. And so we quickly start thinking about how can we contribute to help solve this problem? And obviously that started with setting up testing centers and those things then morphs into how we can be a, a deployer of the vaccines themselves and educate the public about taking vaccines and those things. And so it's been a no more trying experience than for our frontline associates. But I think um, having those true principles, leaning on the values of the company, our core, our core values, those are kind of the things that guide us through a period like this. And then you can't be rigid. You can't think you know the answers to everything. And that's one thing I've learned through my experiences is that Boy, the first thing you have to be is open to alternative points of view, open to alternative ways of doing things, because I think those who, who fail in those periods, become, they become stuck and rigid thinking they know the answers to things. And I think as a leadership team, we've, we really were open and agile when it came to those, decision, those moments of decisions. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, <clears throat> and, and one of the things that you know, people could take from what you just said and the lessons are when you're in situations that are unusual, different, you have, we haven't experienced before, rely on others, ask for advice, ask for contrary points of view. Don't assume any of us know, because as you said, the last one of these was a hundred years ago, and it may be another hundred years. And there is no guide or playbook on how you manage a retailer or a country through a global pandemic at a time when there's so much technology and information moving, which some of it's right, some of it's wrong. But principles are important. I really distinctly remember when we, we sat on a, a call one day and said, we've got to think about our, what are the principles by which we can operate. And at the first at the top of the list was associate safety, customer safety, serving communities. And there are a few things under that, but those were always the top three. And those principles really helped. And something I did, I did learn in the last few years that I've heard for many years, but in many times when the pressure's on, it's usually not as bad as you think. It's not as good as you think. And trying to trying to stay somewhere in the middle and stay grounded and, and rely on, on facts and information and trying to keep emotions down, which leads to at times of crisis, you've got to sleep, you've got to eat, you've got to rest, you've got to stay in a position where you don't become fatigued and let emotions come over. So the last question is, um, through the time of 20 years ago and last year, how do you stay balanced and make sure that you are, that you're rested, you're thinking clearly, it, because you know any of us in any of our jobs, whether you're a cashier or a store manager or working in a fulfillment center, there's enough work to go on 168 hours a week. That's, that's always been that way and always will be the way. But how do yeah. You I mean, um, my wife, when I was working in the White House, and they'd ask, and this is not a job, it's a way of life uh, because it, it followed us. I had literally a secure phone uh, uh, line, phone underneath my bed that they wired so I could take calls in the middle of the night. Um, and as, you know, as we felt about that is, you know, in the, pre, in, in the, the average stay for a senior staffer in the white house is a little over two years. I ended up doing it for seven. 
and um, and had three children <laughs> while I was in the White House. It was kind of a, a hectic moment. So you do have to, and I give the credit to to President Bush at that time is like really setting priorities around. And to him, he called it the three F's in his life, faith, family, and friends. That those were kind of his, the places where he, he got um, uh, his energy from and we protected those things and his ability um, to get exercise consistently, get the proper amount of sleep, those things. And to really think about that this was going to be a marathon, not a sprint. And we all know working at Walmart, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so we have to have boundaries. And I know that's one thing for those of us who are working remotely, that's tough to do the boundaries between the personal and the professional, but you got to create those boundaries and protect them. Um, we've got to have, you know, these values of respecting the individual and these things we have to respect each other, particularly during times of stressful moments, like we find ourselves in with a pandemic and whatnot. And as we, we dealt with like the social unrest of this past, you know, 18 months and those things, and a lot of our stores and clubs were at, you know, uh, you know, right on the, the, the cusp of where a lot of that disruption was. And, um, and so leaning on each other, um, focusing on our own health, focusing on our, um, our personal health, as well as our, our relationships, those are all very important to be, and you got to bring your full self to work and you got to feel comfortable doing that. And as a company, we're trying to get better at making sure that people do feel comfortable bringing their full self to work. And so, yeah, that's the thing about development and in running a business. When you think you've hit the destination, it just moved ahead a few more miles. So you got to get rest and keep on running. I, I remember uh, last year we were all on about the six week straight of trying to manage, figure out what to do. And I think it was you I called and I said, I think I've, I've got a way I figured out how my team can take a, a half day or day off and we're all going to cover for each other. And I think he started laughing and said, good luck. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. It was a few weeks after that I realized I understand that, that that one day that we decided we would all take ended up being about a half day. And then you know later in the summer, things normalized a bit. But for a couple months there, it was taking information, react as fast as you can, figure out how to source masks for associates before that that deadline was coming and you know we we know a lot more now and we're more equipped but you know for everybody that's that's watching um there's a lot in in the stories that, that dan's talked about a lot in the lessons and you know we're in this as a team and we rely on each other and, and what those principles you said of faith family friends what you didn't hear in there was self it's not all left to any of us to try to come up with all the answers ourselves or do everything ourselves we've got a great team of people who can support us and somewhere in the group in, in any facility, there's, prob there's probably a person who, who can help any of us think through what might be next and how to manage and, and just rely on people that have different experiences. That's the, that's the value of, of diversity and diverse thought and diverse backgrounds all coming together, trying to yeah. achieve a single mission. Yeah, I agree. And I, one final point I would make that I've learned um, during times like this is don't assume somebody else has thought of, of what to do. Don't assume that there's people above you that's figured it out. If you got an idea, share it. Um, you'd be surprised how many times that it becomes the kernel of something that turns into a major policy change. I've seen it at government. I've seen it here at Walmart. Um, so we don't know unless you assert yourself. So don't assume somebody else is going to come up with that idea. Be the person who comes up with that idea that helps improve the company, helps each other. And, and, um, if it turns out to be one that we already thought of, no harm done. Right, it could right. be that big one that that changes the direction of of really important policies that could have impact literally 
thousands, if not uh, millions of people. Yeah, that's right. Because so many things we've done in the last couple of years have been emails from associates, an idea of when we got, went in a facility in a store or, or just some sort of communication or ask Sam, there are great ideas coming in all the time. Well, Dan, thanks uh, so much for the time. And for associates that um, want to participate in anything more, more broadly, there are things you can do. Uh, you can contribute at, at, at th- things like the roundup at walmart.com. Um, that's a featured uh, nonprofit for the 9-11 Memorial Museum, Museum and then the Never Forget Fund. Um, and any, any time, anytime you have the chance to, if there's a way to either go see the memorial in New York or tour the Pentagon and hear the stories of what happened that day, just a great way to, to uh, really pay some sort of tribute to those who, who lost their lives on 9-11 and the families and the survivors still today. Uh, this is an event that changed the country and it's, it's timely that we get to talk about this today as we, we head to the 20th anniversary of the attack. Dan, thanks a lot. Thanks for your contributions as an associate and thanks for your contributions as an American government. You bet. Pleasure.